We're back. It's me, Drew McGarry, uh, the guy that, that you love, uh, the host of this podcast. I have to be honest with you. I'm not Drew McGarry. This is David Roth. Uh, the Big Dog is recording his audiobook for The Night the Lights Went Out, out in September. Uh, it's a book about the time that he suffered a traumatic brain injury. I won't give away how it ends, uh, but he'll be back next week. So uh, I'm joined this week by the closest thing that we have to Drew McGarry in terms of gravitas, uh, which is Ray Ratto. Hi, Ray. Hi, I'm Kelsey McKinney, and I also have an <laughs> Yeah, we're going to... Um, you say gravitas, what you mean is gravity, because A, I'm built low to the ground, and I'm in revoltingly wide. No, there's, it's more that there's only a couple of people uh, here at the, the website that I authentically fear. Uh, Drew, because he's <laughs> extremely tall and has a long reach, and then you, because you're just, you're very cruel. I cannot dispute any of those things. <laughs> but this, this is a, actually, um, that's, it will, as it will be revealed over the course of this episode, Ray is actually probably the nicest person that works at Defector. He's just. I'm um, a bastard and don't you tell anybody anything. He's extremely invested in making sure that uh, no one knows about it. So I'm not going to drag you through a discussion of my vacation. Although I did get to see Drew at the end of it, which was pretty nice. His family was uh, renting a lake house that was like 10 minutes away from where my wife grew up. So I got to sit with the guy on a porch and talk about our website, which is an experience that I've never had. And what was weird about it coming at the end of the vacation, as it did, was that it felt like a normal thing that you might do with a friend. And that when we started out up there, we were up there for three weeks, and it started out feeling kind of normal. And then there was this feeling of like sort of rocketing back through time as like people started putting masks back on and getting worried about COVID in a way that they weren't even earlier that month. And then when I stepped off the plane here and suddenly we're back in the fucking 2001 Afghanistan discourse with David Frum telling me what I don't understand about international relations again, I felt like I had come completely unstuck in time. I'm not going to ask you to drag me back to the present, Ray, but uh, how have these last few weeks been for you? Because it feels kind of like we're rowing backwards a little bit. Well, out here, they've been sort of fairly strident about sort of COVID safety. So the the lurch hasn't been as bad, but, you know, we have our share of, you know, health deniers. Um, you know, but I, I mean, I always was of the opinion that this was going to be like a two-year process and people have been working very hard to fast track a virus, <laughs> which is hilarious to me because viruses don't usually carry calendars. Yeah, they sort of do what they do until they stop doing it. So um, it's a very American thing to sort of take that response to to like mark your email urgent and be like, are you on this? Sorry to ask you to work on a Saturday. Can you fix the pandemic? Yeah, exactly. That is exactly what it is. And I mean, it's hilarious because, you know, I mean, it, it happens in sports all the time. You know, everything will be safe by opening day. Really? Yeah, you, you you cut a you cut a deal with the with the bacteria, right? Well, it's a very powerful brand. Uh, I think you know once people realize that there's like all this other sponsorship money involved, including some sports betting stuff. I think even uh, the novel coronavirus SARS-CoV two would have to realize that there are other schedules in play. Yeah, I mean, just I, and I and I think it got schooled that way. It's been taught a valuable lesson. <laughs> you know, it was you, weird you though because it did feel better. National Hockey League. Yeah, right. <laughs> But it did feel better by opening day. I mean, that was the part of it that was kind of bizarre. I mean, that like, I mean, it seemed like we were, there was this sort of trajectory. I guess this is just how it is. And, you know, like what feels bad about it is just having to go back to worrying about stuff that I had sort of hoped that I wouldn't have to worry about quite as much anymore. But as you said, I mean, that like this is not going to be linear. And Lord knows there's enough people with enough of their identities invested in making sure that the shit goes on for as long and as excruciating a process as possible. Yeah, I mean, it I mean, it's it's all cringeworthy. I mean, I'm, I was watching some Premier League games over the weekend, and I, I'm sure this was directed not only by the Premier League people, but by NBC, that the broadcasters had to rave about the return of fans like literally every five minutes. Yeah. And the only thing I could think of was, yeah, and I can't wait until 11,000 of them get the virus because they got packed in next to other people with the, with the virus. It's, yeah. it, it, you know, 
It just feels kind of bad. This is going to last twice as long because everybody wanted it to last half as long. Yeah, I think that that's... It's a nice metaphor for, you know, the futility of human existence. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I keep coming back to the one that's sort of like the idea of people... I mean, like the Kirk Cousins thing that Drew and I talked about on the last issue episode where people are kind of like, well, it's different for me because I'm different than other people. So, like, it might be that, you know, taking the same precautions that are recommended by health authorities are good for you, but I'm Cole Beasley. And I can't really be held to the same sort of standards as a normal person because of the fact that I'm like one of the top six or seven slot receivers in the AFC. And that is like, you know, to a certain extent, there's obviously like that's a a load-bearing delusion in American life, right? The idea that like somehow your experience of the world is significantly different and significantly more significant than anybody else's. What's hard about that is that, like, I think that's not the thing that's really screwing it up. Like, I think, like you said, it's basically more this idea of, like, people getting tired. Like, this is not, like, a value thing or, like, even, a, a like, a failure discursively or politically or whatever. It's just that, like, it's really hard to do this shit for a long time. And at some point, you're just going to start to talk yourself into not having to do it. Well, I mean, like, Layla Ali basically giving everybody a lecture about, you know, you know, let the body do what it does. Oh, well, yeah. in 600,000 cases, what the body does is die. Right. This is like it's a pretty do- well documented response. Those are especially poignant to me. The ones where it's like, how am I going to get the pandemic when my fridge looks like this and it's like a bunch of turnips and a head of broccoli and it's like, I well, I know how that would work actually. Like, I eat a lot of turnips too, man. <laughs> like, you've got to be realistic about it. Yeah. I'm a scientist. I've seen mold grow on my vegetables. Right. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Well done. Yeah. No, I no. It's the it, the 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 whole thing has been sort of a a lesson in not just hubris, but sort of meta hubris, where it's I can't stop and take care of my fellow man. I've got stuff to do. Yeah. Important business documents to attend to. And yeah. All this other stuff. I, I. You know. That seems to be, I mean, this like, I don't want to steer like the meta hubris thing like that. I don't want to talk too much about Afghanistan because I'm not an expert and uh, in, in that oh, or any topic. What's that? Yeah. Well, this is what I was going to say. Like that is to me like the definition of that. The idea of like the guy that basically found a way to package and sell the initial cock up that then became this like generation spanning political crime is now coming back more in sorrow than in anger and telling you what you got wrong about it. Like, to me, I mean, I just don't, I don't know how there's space in the culture for that shit. Like, I don't know how he's still considered an essential voice. I guess he didn't like Donald Trump, and that's kind of enough to get you over in some ways, if you're at the Atlantic or whatever. But to me, that whole bit of it, that feeling of just, like, actively being awake while this is repeating itself is a really, like, I've found it kind of hard to to sit with. Well, there is nothing worse anywhere than the guy who works hardest to be the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. Just, it, I mean, if, if at some point somebody wanted to make me minister of justice, I would bring back the death penalty just for that guy. <laughs> just yeah. Fatal whatever, vibes. Whatever room you're in, if you're acting like you know more than everybody else, you need two in the back of the neck. Yeah. Well, it's a very like sort of, it's a weird sort of delusion there too, because I think that, Especially, I mean, where when you put it in the context of a war that immiserates millions of people and kills hundreds of thousands of people and costs all of this money that, you know, we keep getting told is finite everywhere but that, that like in that case, the idea of being abstract about it in that way and like just kind of trusting your superior intellection to get you over and make it right is like it I mean it's unbearable when there's somebody in a room sort of holding forth about like well like I you know it's not like at a fantasy draft where they're like well he's not in my first tier kickers like maybe Jason Myers is right for you but he's not in my first tier kickers that guy's annoying the person that's then like I think that you don't understand this essential thing about like the Afghan spirit like that sort of element is like that is criminal to me yeah here's what you don't get yeah you know it's it, it what it is it's it's the it's the universal version of getting pulled over by a cop and opening up with, don't you know who I am? <laughs> yes. I'm a Hall of Fame baseball guy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. 
I mean, Which, by the way, well done on the Orioles thing today. Oh, thank you. Yeah, this is uh, to get people up to speed. Uh, when I last spoke to Ray, um, I was struggling through trying to write a story about the most depressing team in baseball. And Ray really encouraged me to steer into getting more upset about it. And I did. After we got off the phone, I made it 400 words longer. And then Barry edited it and made it 300 words shorter. And uh, then it... The <laughs> yeah, well, he Let's, he, let's hate him on the count of three. He did. He did the right thing. I think that there is like an additional digression about Trey Mancini's free agent prospects that, like, honestly, um, it wasn't even interesting to me. Like, I woke up this morning upset about it. So, but yeah, that was. I mean, while we're talking executive hubris, I mean, that's kind of like again, it's it's obviously on a different magnitude than like David Frum's crimes. But if we were going to put uh, Mike Elias in the dock for a minute, like, I think that it, it's strange, again, to be, like, sort of, this is as extreme a version of, like, process teardown shit as I've ever seen in baseball. And the Orioles are, like, they're literally losing by 10 runs a game over the course of this month, which is now more than half over. Like, they, it's not that they're, you know, they're not worse than the 62 Mets. Like, I don't think anybody will be, but there's something really depressing and really intentional going on there that I found myself kind of morbidly drawn to. Well, and the thing about this baseball season is that the Orioles are just the latest people to wear the crown. Yeah. I mean, the Diamondbacks are this bad for two months. Yeah. Um, the Pirates have been awful. The Rangers have been awful. The Cubs just finished being awful by winning yesterday. Yeah. They were tied with the Orioles for basically longest losing streak. It was kind of... Uh, it's like if you watched a horse race and there were just two horses that were uh, having a pooping contest at the opening gate while the other horses ran around. Yeah. Or, you know, the dressage at the Olympics where the horses just basically learned how to lift up their, their leg, put their foot <laughs> yeah. in the air, and still manage to flip off the rider. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a powerful moment of, uh, yeah, that was a statement that may someday be um, viewed as, a, as a much more powerful even than we understood at the time. But yeah, I mean, the baseball version of that is definitely the Orioles losing 10 to nothing in front of 3,000 people against the Rays. Yeah, it's, you know, I mean, I don't know what to make of this season in a bunch of different ways, but the Orioles are fascinating because they they also have guys who are absolutely remember some guys level guys. Yes. And, and my theory has always been, if you have a name that's fun to type as well as say, that's a guy. Yeah. You know, like Adley Rutschman. I could listen to that all day long. Right. And he could very well be, like, he might wind up being a star. He might wind up being Buster Posey while we're naming guys that, like, have names like that. But yeah. even if he's not, like, he sounds like a guy that was, like, served in the Senate from, like, the state of Oregon for 24 years and never passed any law. He's just got yeah. that kind of, like, it's a, it's a Charles Portis-ass name. And I respect that. Yeah. I mean, but then, and they've got like several, like Ryan Mountcastle. Yep. This is, and these are the good players. I mean, that like once you start getting further down the roster and you're like, they don't have Chance Cisco anymore, but they had a lot of like third tier pulp novel gunslinger dudes for a long time, which I always appreciate in a baseball team. Yeah. They, 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 what they need to do is do a deal with the Marlins to get Zach Pop. Oh, that's really one of the great ones. Zach Pop sounds like a guy that would have like extremely good hair and would have like um like one hit from 1985. Yeah, like he's wearing like a members only jacket on the cover of the record. There's uh yeah, there's a lot. I mean, the Marlins are another team that seems very consciously to be kind of sitting out the rest of the season. I, you know, the Mets are sort of trying there's a lot of teams that are kind of you know doing the plausible deniability thing i think it was jeff passon said that there's like seven and a half teams that are actively not trying right now which is yeah it's one thing when you write about that at the beginning of the year and you're like i have concerns about the balance of power and all this it's another thing when like you have to fucking watch them like not even oh. if you're a fan of the team like it really does kind of mess things up that like you know teams in pennant races the Padres have three games left against those Washington generals the rest of the way. And the Reds have like 25. Yeah. I mean, it's, I hate analyzing pennant races based on, you know, remaining schedule. Yeah. Also it's mid August. Like we're certainly going to be wrong. We just don't know how that's going to happen yet. But I mean, this almost makes it true. I mean, just, you know, getting like the giants 
you know, for all the reasons that they're winning that you can tell, I'm convinced that one of them is they're 14 and two against Arizona. Yep. I mean, you know, if, the, if they're only breaking even against those guys, they're two games behind the Dodgers who literally have no pitchers. Yeah. I mean, and it's, I think at that point, the, like, this is, it's weird to see it be that pointed. It's the same deal with the, the Rays and the Orioles, that the Rays are 13 and one against the Orioles. And like, that is really the difference. Like the Yankees are five and nine against them or something like that. You know, that like, it does add up over the course of a season. It's just weird that there's these teams that effectually, like effectively function not as like collections of replacement level dudes, although they are that, but as like basically like a replacement level team that you could then just like sim a game against a major league team and see what happens with it. Yeah. And, and and we're not that far away from it because it will save on airfares. Right. I was going to say that this is one of those things that could then be spun as being like, it's really fan friendly. Like people love to um, look at algorithms and stuff now. Like that adds the feeling of, I mean, it's weird. I I had this writing about um, the Mariners earlier that like, I've been kind of like drawn to uh, executive cynicism and bad baseball, uh, you know, ownership just in general. I mean, I guess as a, as a Mets fan, it's like, you know, I keep returning to, to my roots as <laughs> and like the things that I came up seeing as a young man. But there is like, there's always a faction of fans. And like, I'm not going to tell anybody how to be a fan or like what they should enjoy. Where like, anytime you write a story like that, there's someone that can play the smartest guy in the room card. You know, even if it's just the smartest guy in that little space on your Twitter timeline or whatever, who's like, you don't get it. Like Jerry DePoto is playing the long game. Mike Elias is playing an even longer game, like a game so long that it is impossible to tell where the starting line even is. Yeah. It's measured in geologic time. Right. Yeah. This is good. Like we have no idea how many parsecs we are from the Orioles beginning to put their player development protocols into effect. But in all of that, it's like, it's true as far as it goes. Like it is the sort of thing where like, you can't necessarily fault the Orioles for losing all the time because they're not trying to win. I do think, though, that you can fault them for not trying to win. And I think that there is a sense in which, like, this isn't... It's not strategic or even tactical to have your team win 58 games every year. Like, the difference between that... Like, I was talking to Tom Skoka, who's, like, sort of America's Orioles fan and, like, a good ombudsman to have on any post that you write about that team. And he thought I was too nice to Mike Elias in the post by suggesting that there even was anything going on there. And I think a lot of that is that, like, he was saying that by this point in the Astros rebuild, which Elias was a part of, as was his assistant GM, I mean, it's like that sort of diaspora of Astros execs who got out before the really disgraceful stuff happened, that he was like, by this point in the Astros rebuild, they were signing you know, Scott Feldman, like not stars, but they were running a 70 win team out there. And the Orioles seemed very consciously, they seemed almost spooked by the fact that like they seemed close to that last year in that weird shortened season, they were like acceptably bad. And they like very consciously started rowing backwards to make sure that they were not going to jeopardize their 106 loss season this year. And I don't know what that necessarily does for anyone. I won't get too sentimental about it. I know you're good at checking me on shit like that. I feel like that's a really rude thing to do to people's summers if you're a baseball team that plays in public. Well, it's it, it it's the general manager making himself the center of not just the process, but the reason for the team existing. Yeah. Um, it's the only show there is, you know? Like, that's the whole deal is that. When the face of your franchise is your manager, you're in trouble. When the face of your franchise is your general manager, you're doomed. Yeah. And doing what the Orioles have done, I mean, is sort of what the St. Louis Browns used to do year in and year out, is yeah. finish eighth, you know, with, you know, 49 wins, It'd be seen by, you know, 3,000 people a game if it's a giveaway. And eventually they ended up in Baltimore. So there's nothing <laughs> noble about what they're doing. But yeah. they all, and I, this is a theory I'm starting to work out, they are all sort of veering in their own ways toward what is the fourth true outcome of baseball now, other than walk strikeouts and homers. And that is be Tampa. Yeah. Because Tampa was horrible for forever. 
And then they had that one spike where they got to the World Series in 2008. And that was the result, in some ways, of them being horrible. I mean, it was like they started to yeah. hit. They missed on a lot of first overall picks, too, but they hit on a few. And then they had yeah. talent in the in the system. But but the thing that makes them both delightful and pernicious is that more recently, they've reinvented the way the game is conceived, not just because they use an opener instead of a starting pitcher or because they have nine relievers, all of whom throw 103 <laughs> miles an hour. Yep. But they have sort of mastered the art of having no great player, but a bunch of guys who can play five positions. Yeah. And you they figured out how to do it with pitchers. I mean, it's it's really it's impressive if you uh, take a lot of the value stuff out of it. Yeah. And and what you see is the Dodgers are doing that because Andrew Friedman came from Tampa, Mm -hmm. but they're doing it with a fat checkbook. Yeah. And the Giants are absolutely doing that because Farhan Zaidi worked for Andrew Friedman in L.A. So that this is the new this is the new template for baseball. Yeah. Which is, if you can get a guy that you have to pay thirty five million dollars a year to fine. But the backbone of your team is guys who can play six positions. Right. And that's like it's weird to think that that's the but I think it is true to a certain extent that like Chris Taylor and Max Muncie are not as important to the Dodgers as Mookie Betts. But like they mean a lot, like because of the fact that like there's never that significant drop off if a person is hurt, if a person is slumping or whatever. There's always like somebody that can step in there and more or less do what you need them to do. Yeah. And if you lose Mookie Betts, as the Dodgers do almost habitually this year, yeah. you can fake it. I mean, with that with the team they trot out, the fact that they're only four games behind San Francisco is something of a miracle. Yeah. Because I don't think there are 10 people in America who can name their ro- starting rotation right now. I mean, it's, I can tell you, I think it's easier for me to name the Dodger starters that are on the IL right now than it is for me to name the guys that are likely to start yeah. this week. Yeah, including the guy they got at the trade deadline, which was Danny Duffy, and the guy they got after the trade deadline, which is Cole Hamels. Yeah. Well, Hamels is already done for the year, right? And their rotation right now is Walker Bueller, who's really, really good. Yes. And then you go right to, um, now the name just, oh, Mitch White. That's an <laughs> alias. That, yeah, I was going to say. He has a better name than that, but he's he's on the land. It's cool that they got Rob Manfred to uh, unlock the create a player option in Major League Baseball, the literal yeah. thing, so that they could have Mitch White. Yeah, David Price, who basically was a, a dorm couch on the front lawn with a sign that said free. <laughs> no bugs. You know, I mean, it just, how are they doing this? I mean, it helps that they're scoring a ton of runs, but yes, it is pretty amazing to watch. Yeah, but I mean, they're doing it because Max Muncy yeah. and because Chris Taylor and because all the off-brand guys who, you know, again, play five positions, but they rake. So this and is the Giants, are, the Giants are doing the same thing. And I think this is probably the new, new baseball until it becomes unfashionable in three years. Yeah, that's sort of how I saw this maybe progressing in that direction last year. I was trying to write about it with the when the Rays were in the World Series against the Dodgers. And it was like, in some ways, they're doing the same things. I mean, it was, as you said, like the Friedman tie-in makes it literal. But there was a sense of being like, the Rays are, are optimizing for every eventuality with this versatility. And then also like for them, it helps that it keeps costs down, you know, that there's like, no one's getting too many saves. No one's getting too many wins, except for like one random middle reliever who has 10. And that's like, that's their approach. It's just like, it's not the sort of thing, like you could do that with money. And I don't know how the Rays could ever fully compete with it. If it's both, if it's being done as intelligently by a team that's comfortable spending five times more, on players, then like, of course that second team will be better for it to me, like the giants. And so I've just been watching them beat the Mets as, as everybody uh, has been beating the Mets for the last few weeks. I still don't get it. I understand that like it's, you know, good management and like really, you know, highest percentile outcomes from a lot of the players, but I don't look at that roster and see a team that is, not just four games better than the Dodgers, but like notably better than every other team in the National League. Like, is there, what am I missing there? Um, you're missing, okay, here I am going to be the smartest guy in the room. 
So I'm prepared to blow my own brains out. <laughs> um, You're just the guy that has the giants in your time zone. I'm not relying on you to be the smartest person in the room. I'm relying on you to be someone who's watched them sober more than I have. Um, they have three things, and it's the same three things that they had when they were winning three World Series a decade ago. Their starting pitching is like third in baseball. Their relief pitching is like fifth in baseball. And their cumulative defense is like third in baseball. They throw the ball. They catch the ball. The one thing that's different about these guys is that they hit homers, and nobody knows why. Yeah, that's... They lead baseball in homers playing in a park in which you can land planes. This is what was so frustrating about them when they were winning the World Series every two years was that it's like, it wasn't just that it happened. Like, it was kind of funny that it kept happening and the pitching was good. The annoying part was that it was fucking Aaron Rowand doing it to you. And you're like, I know what kind of player this is. Why is this happening to me? Yeah, it's Pat Burrell. It's Cody Ross. It's um, Marco Scudero. I mean, literally guys that you pick up at Ross, like four for a (laughs) Like. Like if you got them at a used bookstore, there'd be a little marker thing on the bottom of it that lets you know it can't be resold. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Originally $32, now marked down to $9.99. Yeah, it's a cutout bin-ass outfielders knocking like powerful teams with huge payrolls out of the playoffs every year. Yeah, but it Sounds been, more fun than it was. Yeah, and that's sort of what they've got now. I mean, they are, they are lucky in that Buster Posey invented the, ter- the version of the gap year. You just take a year off and then come back and magically all the things that you were weighing you down physically are now gone. I think more catchers should do that. I think every catcher should do it. Yeah. It seemed like it worked for Salvador Perez, too. I mean, it seems like that's, you know, whatever, whatever it is that works. If there's anything that makes a catcher in their 30s um, less agonized about having to do their job, like you got to consider it. Yeah. I mean, go to 120 games instead of 140. You know, I mean. There are four good catchers in baseball right now. And one of them is too young to feel it yet. That's Will Smith. But the other three guys absolutely, you know, either have had the gap year that's rejuvenated them or are due for one like JT Realmuto. Yeah. I'm going to see if that's catcher in baseball is hitting 183. Yeah. And looking unhappy while doing it. I'm going to see if the the whole gap thing works on on podcasts. We're going to take a brief break. And then when we come back, we're going to be rejuvenated and uh, start uh, podcasting like people five years younger than we oh, are. Oh, so people who are only in their 80s. <laughs> we're back. I can see why you like saying it. Uh, Ray, we're going to do the, uh, the dumb portion of the show where uh, I give you some things to remember and then you just tell me some stuff. And then if we have time, I'm going to read you a question from the, the fun bag. No one sends them to me, but this is leftover from, uh, from one that we had that Drew and I did not have time to discuss. Would you like... Before we get to that, I, I just want to say one thing. Yes. A very funny comedian named Sean Locke, the British guy, just died today. Oh, geez. And I bring that up only because he had one of the great lines ever. They asked him what, you know, what, what he was going to do after he passed. And he said, when I die, I want my ashes scattered into Piers Morgan's eyes. <laughs> and that just that just sticks with me because, you know, I didn't know that he was sick, but I laughed for 10 minutes when I heard that one. It's perfect. There's no wasted space in it. Also, you couldn't really pick a guy uh, whose eyes were more deserving of that sort of thing. So... It wouldn't be quite so funny if he had said Eric Trump or Boris Johnson, but Pierce Morgan is just a low-level evil enough that it's exactly the thing that should happen. Yeah, I got. Um, have you ever had any cause to engage with Pierce Morgan online on uh, on on Twitter? No, I don't have the hazmat suit required. He just he just seems like when you touch him, body parts start to decompose. It wasn't good. Yeah, he's a he's a name searcher. And uh, he hit me with a quote tweet a few years ago. And it's not the sort of thing you see people talk about, like the traumatic experience of being brigaded. And it's like a bunch of people who are like, Piers, mate, you're a pillock. Like, that's all that you get in response to it. Like, there's not a constituency for that guy. It's every fucking person in that country hates him. And then he was only here for a few years. And everyone that remembers him hates him, too. Uh, Yeah. Oh, no, he's yeah. 
he's one of those guys that everyone can agree on. Yeah, which is nice. I don't think that's exactly what he was going for. But anyway, rest in peace to Sean Locke. May your wishes be fulfilled. Yeah, he, he, and, he and Rob Manfred might be the last two. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a guy. You can tell me your recollection of this guy. Um, and I hope that, I mean, there's, there's one obvious one, but like, um, surprise me with what you remember about Dave Dravecki, Ray. Um, like everyone knows his arm fell off. Very sad. Yeah. I was there in Montreal the night that it did. And they were, were like at the game. I was at the game. I was covering the giants at the time. And there were like 2000 people at, uh, at Olympic stadium. And it is deathly quiet there in ways that church is not deathly yeah. quiet. I went to one game there and my memory of it with my summer camp, we we're in the upper deck. I remember a truck backing up behind center field that was beeping the way that trucks do. And we could hear it from our seat in the outfield. The, 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 the ambient noise there was when you got up off your seat, the seat would immediately recline at, at top speed. <laughs> You'd hear these clacks like constantly. But when his when when he snapped his arm off, you could hear it, and you could hear him scream. There was like a like a, and then ah, and I was my head was down. I was typing, and I looked up and I could see him grab his arm and I go. He just he just blew his arm off, and that's that's exactly what happened. And I had never had like a, a real affinity one way or another toward him. I knew he was sort of a a devout Christian, which doesn't bother me. And was part of that that John Birch cabal in San Diego. Which yeah, that's the other thing I know about him is that he was really concerned about like water fluoridation because he hung out with Eric Shaw. Yeah. But he also was an incredibly nice man. So he caused me to have to sit there and agonize about, well, you know, on the evilometer, where does he rank? Yeah. And I kind of decided that you can't be a true believing Bircher and be a really good guy that that the, the Bircher part is more, I don't know if it's affectation, but it was a much smaller part of his life than other stuff. And between that and the, and, you know, seeing his career just blown to smithereens in a second, that's the thing I remember most is that I heard the end of his career. Yeah. It is a weird thing to, I mean, it's like the thing with base, we were talking last night, uh, Chris Bassett was hit with a batted ball in a really scary sort of way. Yeah. And it, it's weird that that doesn't happen more in the sport, but it is like the Dravecki thing. I remember I was a kid, uh, but I do remember it being like traumatic, even just to read about. I mean, I, the idea of, of being there is scarier, but I guess that that's like how it is. He, I think he's like alive and healthy. He's just not. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he, he turns up at Giants games every year or at least has until COVID. Uh, but the, I think the other thing that, that made it weird was the fact that he had already beaten cancer and then was making a comeback. Oh, and that's then to right. Have it, and that way, I mean, you immediately go to, oh my God, the cancer's back and it's eating his, his skeleton. I remember stuff. that speculation at the time, that that was like, the, basically, yeah. are these two things related? And it's more, it seems like it's just a very unnatural physical movement for the human body to throw a baseball and sooner yeah. or later, it does tend to, you know, whatever, wind up in, in bad places. But yeah. can I, this is um, not to uh, steer too quickly away from the depressing saga of Dave Dravecki, which again, I chose to steer us into. Uh, yeah. It's your show. You can do what you want. I, and so I'm about to do it. Uh, Montreal seems like a really cool place to cover a baseball team. Um, going basically on uh, the story that I read in Keith Hernandez's 1986 memoir, If at First. Uh, it just sounded like an incredibly fun town to have a sports team in that it hasn't had one for, you know, whatever, for going on two decades well, now. Yeah. Um, it was a great town. It was the best town in the, the National League, even after you factored in the fact that getting into the country and leaving the country are two equally incredible pains in the ass. I'm sure it's a thousand times worse now, but I don't. Yeah, like, but I mean, it was, you know, stand in line, show your passport, yada, 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 wait for your bag, you know, drag the bag over to get your passport checked again. You know, I mean, there were just a lot of little inconveniences before you got downtown. But once you got downtown, the, the city just sort of had this energy that crackled. 
you know, it just, it just felt like stuff was happening. And if you were going to sit in your hotel room, you were going to miss all of it. Even more so than Cincinnati, would you say? Yeah, I, I think Montreal's poutine fixation is not nearly as pernicious as Cincinnati's skyline chili fixation. Yeah, everybody's but putting they are the same thing. Everybody's piling that that wet meat on top of things, but some people do it better than others. It's definitely yeah. Like, um, <laughs> I mean, I remember uh, when when Spike Lee's first movie came out. Uh, me and a couple of other writers decided to go see it as a matinee. And so we walked over and we walked into the theater. There were the three of us and a shadowy figure in front of us. This is in Montreal? In Montreal. So you're seeing she's got to have it in Montreal while covering Andre Dawson. This is all just to get everybody up well, to speed no, on what's this going is on. Po- this is post-Dawson. Okay. I, I, may, I may look 80. No, she, she's got to have it came out in like 86 or something or 88, I guess. Yeah, but he was not with the, them by then. I think he'd already gone to the Cubs. Okay, yeah, he had secured yeah. the bag. Um so anyway, we're watching the movie. And it's a great movie. Uh, you know, we're we're you know having a time of our lives. The movie ends, lights come up, and I see that the other person in the theater is an 80-year-old woman with two shopping bags. <laughs> she just she she'd gone to, you know, she'd gone to the market and on the way back she says, "I think I'll take in a movie." And that can't happen in America. Not just not just an, an old woman taking her shopping into a movie theater. But it's to see Spike Lee. That is sort of true. Like, I want to believe in a version of New York City. Like, it's because I was a kid that grew up outside of it. Like, I liked the idea of that being what New York is like. But there's a thousand ways in which it is not like that. Yeah, no. But Montreal must have more sports. It has to have a basketball team. It has to have a baseball team again. And Quebec City also has to have those things because that's what a if great the downtown. what if we just relegated the Giants for a year and moved the Alouettes into the NFC East? Would that be something that you'd be willing to deal with? Um, yes and no, because American football is repellent, <laughs> but Canadian football is hilarious. And is it just I the extra that- the extra ten yards really make the difference for you? There are a bunch oh. of other weird things where, like, sometimes guys will just kick the ball for no reason. I always enjoy that part. No, the thing that makes Canadian football great is the fact that it's just it's it's a degaff experience from start to finish. You know, I mean, these are guys who you know they buy they they drive beer trucks in the off season, which is fine. But the thing that is best about it, and I found this out a year when I went to cover Grey Cup Week in the same year that the Super Bowl was coming to Santa Clara. So I decided I was going to do a compare and contrast. Classic Bay Area sports writer move. When the Super Bowl comes to your town, you find an excuse to travel some other place. Well, except that it's two months earlier. It was, it was Thanksgiving oh, that's right. or Thanksgiving week. So I get, in, get into Winnipeg, which is every bit as desolate as you think it is in late November. Yeah, they call it Winterpeg. Yeah, and it's the windiest place on earth. Without question. I mean, because there, there's nothing that breaks the wind that comes from the North Pole. It's just, it just straight, you know, you know, down the globe and up your ass. They don't, <laughs> they, don't, they don't screw around. But for a week, fans of every team came into Winnipeg and they had their own parties to which everybody else was welcome. Every bit of money that they made on all these parties went to the local food bank and they couldn't give you enough beer. So these are, wait, fans of the teams that were not in the Grey Cup. Yeah, just everybody. It, it literally is, it's a, it's a festival of football fans. It's not a festival of football because Canadian- everybody fo- knows the football is like kind of tertiary to whatever brought everyone there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of, you know, it, it's, I don't know how to, you know, it's probably what it would be like if if the Big Sky basketball tournament was held every year in the same in in a different place and everybody could drink for free as long as you drank with other people. That's a pretty solid. I mean, even given that there you'd probably still have to kick it with like Idaho Vandals fans. That's a pretty solid pitch to me. Oh, it, it's 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 great fun and and they treat i mean i was the only american uh credentialed that year and they could not be nice enough i i i wanted to do a story on the commissioner because he was from the u.s and it took me eight minutes 
to get the I, commissioner of the I league on the, the PR, phone. I called the PR guy. Hey, can I talk to your guy? And he said, uh, are you free in 10 minutes? And I was going I thought I'd have to wait three days. No, couldn't, couldn't do it fast enough. You know, I just, it's, Everything did you even stay it. for the game or did you just kind of hang out for the well, party? I stayed for the then... game just sort of out of obligation. Yeah. But everything about it is what you what you fantasize like sports writing would be. And it's still that. In fact, they've even got a team that's never existed that is a full-fledged member, which is the coolest thing how ever. Does, it's sort how of does like, that work? <laughs> it's like the Jacksonville Jaguars, only the Jaguars never have to play. Well, that, all right, yeah, sold. Um, but like, so what, how does this, what is the team? What does this mean? Okay. There, there are businessmen in Halifax, Nova Scotia, who have wanted to get Canadian football league team for forever. And so they would go to the league and they would make their pitch. And you would think that they'd be just ushered out of the room as, you know, trespassers and miscreants. And instead they said, okay, you're in, all you have to do is build a stadium. And they haven't been able to get the money up to build the stadium, but the team exists. So they have a license. Like they're basically, they're on the guest list for whenever this happens. Exactly. They're called the Atlantic Schooners, which is a cool name. Yes. And they show up at every Grey Cup too. And they throw their own party. And it's, you know, it's the same thing. They, everybody welcomes them. They know the backstory. It's just, they're the team that doesn't have any merch. It, it's they're, they're like a ghost team. But this is like the dream of every actual professional sports franchise in the United States. Is like if you don't have to pay players or keep up a stadium, but you could sell merch, like that's the gig right there. Like that's how you you get the real money. Yeah, I mean, and and you know, I mean, I'm talking to the guy who's in you know sort of the head of this team, and he's just a local business guy. You know, doesn't have any particular football acumen, or you know, doesn't have a billion dollars behind him. He's just a guy who would like to do this because it's fun. And like Jerry other... Jones. So you're like Jerry Jones is. Yeah. Except, no. <laughs> except for everything about Jerry Jones. He's <laughs> that guy. It, it's every sport sporting event in America is a trade show with just like guys jumping up and down attached to the end of it. Yeah. In Canada, and this may be too romantic a, a version of what is the reality of people who watch it all the time. It can't be that because it doesn't generate enough money. It's just sort of, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put guys in football uniforms and have them run into each other a lot. And you drink beer. I mean, I feel it like is, that was, I feel like um, I remember American pro sports, not all of them, but like the New Jersey Nets were like that when I was a kid. Like it was just, it was a failing local enterprise, but it was like, it felt like a local enterprise. Yeah. Well, failing teams are always better than successful ones. And defunct teams are the best of all. I was going to say, like nothing could ever touch the Atlantic schooners because like at some point you have to play games and then everybody gets upset. But if you don't have to do that, like then you've unlocked some real uh, secret to um, <laughs> the existential happiness in uh, oh. something that is otherwise guaranteed to prevent that. Yeah, I mean, to me, you know, give me the Baltimore Bullets every day, even if you don't like the nickname. It's way cooler than the Washington Wizards. Yes. Infinitely cooler. I mean, Washington Bullets was cooler too, but they had, you know, Abe Poland had big plans we are, I mean, the clock is ticking. I want to do a fun bag question. I'm going to skip over the dead or canceled, although I was going to ask you, do you know for sure that uh, former California Governor Gray Davis is doing okay? I don't know that. I should, I should know that. I should probably um, have checked it myself. I do believe that Gray Davis is alive. Um, I just, it's been on my mind. I'm not going to make you talk about the recount out there. Uh, but while we're doing dumb things from the past over again, it's kind of wild that we somehow landed on that one. Yeah, it, it, that that one, you know, the way the way his governorship ended is sort of the precursor to what we have now, which is a recount where nobody knows how to vote. Even if you know I'm against the recount, there are people who are asking, OK, I vote no, I don't want Gavin Newsom removed, but 
do I have to vote for one of these other people on the ballot to do that? And nobody seems, I mean, people know, but they have to go out and seek that information. Because can, you, it's, can you share it with our listeners? Because that actually sounds really confusing. My, my understanding is if you're against the recount, you can just vote no. And, and leave. Good. Yeah. But okay. there are some people who make the case that, well, you should vote for, you know, somebody else just to, you know, because it will somehow make your ballot stronger. I mean, it, what it is, it, it's a triumph of taking the electoral process and making it so offensively confusing that people will refuse to vote, which is sort of, it's voter suppression of a different kind. Yeah, it's like they found a way to do it, not by being more onerous, but just by being more annoying. Yeah, they haven't, they haven't sent people to polling places like they do in the South and you know, aggressively chase you away with sticks. It's just they piss you off in your own kitchen. I'm not doing this. I don't want to spend 35 minutes on this. This is annoying to me. That California would invent another disruption that's somehow actually more loathsome than the ones they're otherwise selling. I'm going to read the one fun bag question. We're going to answer it and then we're going to leave. Spencer writes, what is the worst type of action sequence in movies? Is it the shaky cam one-on-one fight? The big CGI battle where it's basically a really good cartoon at that point? My vote is the car chase. The first time I saw a car use the emergency brake to make a sharp turn down a narrow alley or drive up or down some stairs and then dodge traffic on the wrong side of the road, it was impressive. But now I wish I had a chase scene timer so I know I have time for a bathroom or a snack break before the hero crawls out of a flipped over car. Ray, what is the worst type of action sequence in movies? I'm going to go ahead and preempt you briefly by saying I think Spencer's dead wrong about this. Do you have a, a vote that is not the car chase? Um. Well, first of all, he's on the right track about slow motion anything. True. Slow motion is the antithesis of action. But for me, it is when somebody jumps in slow motion. Yeah, that's a big Marvel thing. Big CGI jumps onto the top of a moving car. That shit must kill with some demo that I am not a part of, but it does nothing for me. No, well, it's, I mean, because the only thing I can think of when someone is airborne in slow motion is get on with it. Yeah, People right. Jump faster than this. You're wasting my day. I demand fast. It also know? has this like the whole like kinetic element of action is the fun part of it. So the idea of like some like stilted CGI thing of like Chris Evans in a suit suspended in front of a green screen that is then like just filled with TKs that will then be filled in. Like beyond like knowing that that's what it is and feeling a little insulted by it you're right that it's just like that's the opposite of the fun thing like it's such a total misunderstanding of it that i have no idea how it was able to get as far as it did it's like it's like knowing how the sausage is made but knowing even more than that that the meat is tainted yeah also like which is especially tough if you're somebody that likes sausage Oh, like, and, and sausage is one of nature's most perfect foods. Yeah, but no, we're in we're on the same page here. Yeah, that what you're what you're eating is braised hoof. You kind of feel like a mark. <laughs> yeah. The know, thing I think why is it so good? I think why, why doesn't it, yeah, why doesn't it work better if you just pour the sauces down my or the, the spices down my throat? Just, why yeah. do I have to have things that aren't meat pretending to be meat? Yeah, suspending the slurry. It's kind of a, a drag that way. I think Spencer's really unfair to car chases, though. I think that they can be hack. But I feel like a good car chase is like one of the real, like authentic American contributions to the world. Like that there's like the ones that are good, which are basically I like any William Friedkin movie, like the whatever French connection or to live and die in LA or like, like the one in, in Ronin, which John Frankenheimer did that. Like, I think about those all the time, like usually when I'm driving and being glad that I'm going the right way down the highway uh, instead of the other ways I've seen it done in movies. But, like, that's a, a really cool thing if it's done right. Like, if it's done badly and you're getting, like, a reaction shot of Sean Bean and then a stuntman driving a car down a flight of stairs, then, like, yeah, that's probably pretty lame. But Yeah, my rule of thumb is if you have a car chase, you had better have a bunch of sideswipes. You know, park cars on the side and you sort of sideswipe them and then keep heading off with your door half hanging off because that's what I imagine an actual car chase would be. Because American most American cars aren't built to do the kind of crap that they that they want them to do in movies. So make it make it more you know believable. Yes, I plowed into a school bus on my way to chase this criminal. But you have to understand that my large pickup truck has a sizable blind spot, which was designed into effect because it made the front of the car look meaner. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, just it's that because I, I don't imagine that most cops spend hours of their free time trying to soup up the company car, you know, that just, and they're not going to take their own car because that's insane. So yeah, that's cars could be, the that's cars how you get back to Long Island. Yeah, the car should be as flawed as the ones that people just buy off the lot, which means they don't have a turning radius, which means the tires are shitty. So you're bashing into stuff all the time. You're, <laughs> you know, you're you're chasing you're, you're chasing a criminal and you're plowing through a bus stop. Yeah. I mean, that's what it ought to be. That's what's so good about the chase and to live and die in L.A., which I I've saw for the first time recently. It's super scuzzy, like 80s vision of L.A., like smog choked and miserable. And there is a great car chase the wrong way down a highway. But part of what's great about it is that everyone involved, um, all of whom are law enforcement officers, some of them more corrupt than others, are all driving like these like shitty 80s sedans that are like a half a city block in length. Just like whatever, like the Buick Porpoise, like being yeah. steered at like a high rate of speed. And it's it's thrilling in part because of how fucking janky it is and how like whatever, like just sort of like messed up and thwarted and sad seeming it is to be driving those cars at peak speed. And and what is the fascination with going the wrong way on a highway? I guess it's because you're really not supposed to do it. If you're trying to get away from somebody, wouldn't you say, you know what, if I go the wrong way on a highway, I'm steering into traffic that's coming at me at the equivalent of 120 miles an hour. Why is that a good percentage move? Well, that's the difference uh, between you and William Peterson's character in To Live and Die in L.A., Ray. That's the that's the one that jumps out at me. Also, he has curly hair. Well, he is pretty. There's no <laughs> our podcast is produced by Brandon Nix. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to us, that is to say you... Uh, me, Ray, all of us together, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Go to stitcherpremium.com and use promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen, and go to uh, defector.com and subscribe too. We're coming up on our first birthday. We have blogs on the site. Ray? Yeah? Are you still there? I am still here. Thanks for coming on the show, man. It's always a treat to have you. Bye, Drew. Bye, Kelsey. Bye. <laughs> See ya.